Good evening, folks. This is Jason M. Caldwell, your host tonight for Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole. Andrea is going to be in the background running sound engineering for tonight's episode because he has a huge work project he is working on, catching up on. So tonight, I get to be your solo host, and we're going to have some fun. Starting out, to have some announcements for everyone. First off, why haven't you signed up for the Shapeshifting 365 yet? There's still opportunities. Go to andreavitimus.com forward slash shapeshift to see deep more details on Andrea's year-long course, 52-week course on shapeshifting. Coming up at the Spirit Apothecary on March 18th, we have the Cleveland Chaos Convergence. Andrea will be talking about servitors, thought forms, and artificial spirits March 18th, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. at the Spirit Apothecary, 664 Broadway Avenue, Bedford, Ohio. You can contact the store for more details. Also, our longtime listeners remember Shaman Jim, a.k.a. James Stovall. Coming up on March 25th, Andrea is making an appearance in Jackson, Michigan at the Wandering Owl, Shaman Jim's store. And he has a two-part workshop. Now, the first part, getting the info for you right now, folks. I'm sure there are plenty of spots still available. It is the Advanced Ancestor Workshop at the Wandering Owl from 1 p.m. March 25th until 4 p.m. You should contact the Wandering Owl in Jackson, Michigan for more details and for tickets and information. Participants will learn more advanced techniques to channel and work with ancestors in practical ways. This course is going to stress how to improve your real-world magical results. He will be covering improving mediumship, divination, building energies, and even spell work with your ancestors. He will talk more about strategic ancestral work, including healing family wounds and generational issues. Participants will need to bring elements from their own ancestral altars. And I'm sure if you don't currently have an ancestral altar, Andrea will probably be covering how to formulate your own personal ancestral altar. Now, what you really need to jump on, if you are interested, 5 p.m. to 8 p.m., March 25th, after that workshop, this second special workshop is limited to only four participants at a cost of $75. You would, <clears throat> it is the advanced ancestor practicum, and he will work with four participants. Each participant in an individual manner to increase everyone's ability to communicate and work with ancestors as well as fix any issues afflicting their ancestral line. This will be an entirely hands-on and active workshop where we are doing active ancestral sorcery. Each participant will need to bring supplies to build a working ancestral altar, which we will empower in the prat practicum and divination set. We will be doing actual practical work, then working through any issues as well as work to find magical teachers or ancestors with magical power in your ancestral line. He will also be covering working through any issues preventing greater psychic mediumship ability. And I believe that he may have tried to... Oh, and he wants me to know that the 11 to 12 is free basic ancestor work at gyms, same date. So contact Wander now for any questions and or extra details. Now, that all being said, and that was, it's going to be a very busy month. And that covers all immediate things that we know, that I know are coming up for Andrea. Certainly, Sign up for Andrea's newsletter at andreavitimus.com also if you would like to stay informed with extra details. So tonight, this is going to be an interesting and I know potentially controversial topic because we are covering not only John Stedman's work 
in the Cthulian mythos and black magic. He, he has a new book. And I'm also having slight technical difficulty. Tonight, John L. Stedman joins me discussing H.P. Lovecraft and the black magical tradition. It, that is the title of his new book. John, I'd like to welcome you to the show. How are you doing this evening, John? I'm doing very well, thank you. So, as you know, sir, the, those of us who are practicing magicians and occultists, we, uh, we know the Cthulian mythos can raise a lot of controversy, even though it, it has, you are correct, it has a very heavy background with black magicians. Black magic is also a very controversial topic. And I look forward to discussing this further with you. Um, I'd like you to tell the folks a little bit about your magical background, sir. What got you into occultism? Well, like a lot of people, I started out in uh, elementary school. I like ghost stories, horror stories. Uh, back in that time, they had the magazine, Famous Monsters of Film, and I collected those. So I liked anything that was of that kind of nature. And uh, then when I got into middle school, I could read Edgar Allan Poe and writers such as that. And I discovered Lovecraft when I was in middle school. And the main reason why I bought the book on Lovecraft, and I don't remember what edition it was, but it had a very, very cover. It had like a reddish kind of skull that was burning in that black background. And mainly I bought the paperback. It was called The Color of Space and Other Stories by H.P. Lovecraft. Never heard of it before. Uh, but I liked that book, the cover, you know, so I just bought it for the cover. But when I read the first story, I read the title story, The Color Out of Space, I was sitting on a nice warm day out by the schoolyard reading that, and I got shivers down this That very rarely happened to me ever before when I read stories. So I was kind of hooked on Lovecraft at that point. And then slowly as I grew up, I, I left middle school and got to high school, I gravitated toward magical practice. And uh, I'd always was interested in Lovecraft, but at that time I never thought of actually using Lovecraft's entities or his uh, metaphysics in any kind of magical work because they were fictional. And I was doing uh, basic kinds of rituals that were in the marketplace at that time. I did a lot of what I would call, I guess I would call white magical operations, where I would follow Golden Dawn uh, magical teachings. And I would conjure up entities like the spirit of Barksville, the Martian spirit of Barksville. And uh, I uh, read LaVey too, Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible and Satanic Rituals, and he had a chapter on Lovecraft. So Lovecraft was never, he had a, a, a chapter on the use of Lovecraft and magic. And so kind of magic and Lovecraft went hand in hand, but I never thought about using Lovecraft practically in magical working until I got into my last year in high school and I started college. And then I started writing my own rituals uh, based on the Lovecraftian mythos. And uh, it was kind of like a revelation. And before that, I got results with magic, but I wasn't thinking I actually was actually experiencing any kind of real gnosis. Like when I conjured Bart's ball, for instance, the, the entity actually appeared the way it was supposed to appear. It looked just like you would expect the spirit of Mars to look in terms of the way it was dressed and the way that it was reacting. But I, in the back of my mind, I was thinking this thing, is this just something in my mind I just conjured up? Uh, or is this an actual uh, extraterrestrial interdimensional entity? And I really couldn't answer that question. I mean, it was behaving the way you'd expect it to, but I didn't think the real entity necessarily had to behave it. And so I was always in doubt about exactly what was happening, whether I was actually experiencing things that I was invoking out of my unconscious, and whether these things were really there. And uh, when I started working with Lovecraft, I had no question that I was in touch with things. I was at least exchanging energy or information with things that were like radically different than spirits like the spirit of Arts. And then after that, I was kind of hooked on Lovecraft. And all my magical practice after that has been centered on Lovecraft. So, John, I want to ask you, because in your book, you, you tend to use the word extraterrestrial. Sure and 
extraterrestrial as opposed interchangeably with where I think a lot of other occultists would say spirit. And I'm curious as to why you choose the term extraterrestrial. Well, what I what I try and do is this: like uh, when I say extraterrestrial, I mean basically like entities that actually aren't uh, anything like uh, uh, things in our own space-time continuum. Uh, the term could also be, I suppose, an alternate term could be like interdimensional. But what I try and do is this: I can't really quantify the existence of these things. I don't think anybody can. And so what I do is, I call them extraterrestrial, but I am perfectly willing to leave open the question of what these things actually are. Now, I know about chaos magic, but of course they talk about probability ways for the etheric structure. So these things are like uh, manifestations of etheric, uh, of etheric things that you can actually exchange information and experience. But I leave it completely open because I can't quantify it. So, uh, what I argue is extraterrestrials might actually be actual extraterrestrial entities in different planets in our own space-time continuum. They could also be uh, entities that are interdimensional, and then you can connect with them via ritual or whatever. And I'm perfectly willing to accept if, if a uh, magical practitioner wants to, they're just mere pure personifications and powers of the mind. And you're just unlocking those powers and utilizing them. So they're imaginary entities too, you're evoking. And I don't actually try and actually quantify or determine which of these is true. I just leave open the possibility that all of these could possibly be true. All I care about when I do magic is whether I'm actually in contact with something and then whether the goals of my magical uh, ritual or experience actually are realized. Those are the only things I'm concerned. As long as it works, I'm satisfied. So you mentioned a bit of a background. I, I know you have background with the OTO and that you started out with, you have over 30 years experience. You started out working with Golden Dawn techniques. What would you say are similarities and differences between other spirits you have had contact with in your personal work um, that might be from more traditional grimoires versus spirits that you have done work with in the Cthulian mythos? Okay, well, it's a very dramatic difference. Uh, when I actually conjured up images, and I did it several times in like, using the Western magical tradition, but they appear the way they're supposed to appear. Like, the grimoires will actually, if you look at those old, like, 13th or 14th century grimoires, they'll actually give you an uh, uh, image of what you're actually conjuring up. And then if you do the Golden Dawn system, you get an image there, too. And if you use Crowley systems, definitely, you get an image there, too. And uh, they always kind of look like that, but when I actually work with a Lovecraftian entities, I don't necessarily get an image per se, I get like a narrative, I get kind of experience, and, uh, and then I actually have that experience. And so a lot of times, uh, nothing really manifests at all. You know, I'm just involved in the experience, and then at the end of the experience, I feel that uh, my perceptions have changed somewhat. I've learned things. I've gained. I define uh, gnosis as being knowledge and power based. And that I also define as a goal of black magical systems as opposed to white magical systems, uh, where they're more consumed with spiritual perfection as opposed to this knowledge and power. But I get knowledge and I get power, but it's not necessarily a specific image. Like if I conjure Cthulhu, uh, and Lovecraft actually backs up this view too, you know, like he argues that what Cthulhu is is whatever our imperfect senses perceive it to be. Now some people will perceive him as a, as a big kind of humanoid creature with claws and wings and a face full of tentacles. But other uh, individuals will perceive him in different ways. Some people won't even perceive him at all. They'll be totally invisible. In the call of Cthulhu, Lovecraft makes that very clear when Cthulhu comes up near the end of the story uh, and he kills off a bunch of sailors basically the way that they're being destroyed is different for each of them and the way that we perceive them is different too so the, the mythos entities are not actually standard entities i mean they can give me a, a, a thing that actually depends on my own perspective my own initiation and my own skill set as to what i'm going to see what i'm going to experience so if i'm understanding correctly john when you work with a more traditional grimoire spirit, you tend to be able to scry a more specific 
image, having more specific communication. But from your personal experience with the Cthulian entities or the Lovecraftian entities, I, I don't know which word you prefer, um, you're telling me you're not getting necessarily specific visuals and specific communications, but you're having an experience. Now, could you go for the listeners, give a bit more detail as what you mean by having um, an experience as opposed to a conversational communication? Uh, well, what I'll be doing, I'll be like in a place. I'll be in a place. Like when I do rituals, they're very simple. I've simplified to the point where I don't even need any tools or device at all. And if I do need those things, I conjure them myself. And what happens is when I go, when I do the rituals, I'm actually in another place. And when it usually starts out, I can see it kind of transposed on wherever I happen to be. I prefer like outdoor locations. And one of my favorite places was up north. Uh, in this wooded area, it was like a sand dune and a wooded area along Lake Michigan. It was just perfect to do sort of things. Totally isolated, beautiful environment. And I would, whenever I actually do the final part of it, I had two other practitioners, and they were there basically as kind of like a balance deck. One of them would actually deal with all the byproducts. Whenever I do these things, there'd be weird things happening, and he would kind of protect the whole area from any kind of adverse byproducts so I didn't have to deal with it. And he would have weapons. He would usually have a magical sword. But I would go into a circle, and sometimes I wouldn't even be in a circle, uh, and I would actually suddenly, when, I, when the words of power would vibrate, it, it would be transposed. A different kind of an alternate kind of reality would be transposed. And then suddenly I'd be there. It's not like something I'd have to travel to or step into. I would be there, and then I would have a body that went along with it, and then I would have a, a, an experience. I would have experience. I would see things. I would walk with things. I, I would sometimes just be watching things. I would be pulled into different things, and it would just be different uh, sensations. So, what kind of things were you seeing? I mean, I, I know that what I've what I've read about other people's experiences with such entities, um, cliche would say that people get rather disturbing visuals at times. Would you say that you're seeing scenes of destruction, scenes of things that are disturbing, or what kind of things are you seeing during these experiences? Well, uh, you know, I don't like to go into too much detail about it because it can be different every time. And I found that when I'm sure. actually in those experiences, and by the way, I'm working on, like, I turned over my second book to my publishing company, and that's the actual further exploration of Lovecraft and use of the magical persona, and that's nice. more like literary criticism. But I'm working right now on the rituals, because over, ever since my first year in college, I, I developed these rituals, and there are about 20 of them now, and the first five of them are actually dealing with the major entities of the Lovecraftian pantheon, and, uh, what I've discovered from these kind of things are that when I have an experience, I'll give you an example, like uh, Niyarla, for example. We did a ritual for that, me and my um, two associates. And uh, this was done in a room. Like we were just walking in a dark room. And then suddenly, as we were walking, and I got so comfortable with these kind of things that once I actually started doing them, before I even did one thing, before I, I did, and you don't do banishing rituals or consecration or anything like that. There's no need for that. But we were walking, and it was just starting out, and then suddenly another uh, another dimension was kind of transposed. I can see that. I can see it myself walking in another dimension, and then I can see behind it the room, and then suddenly the room is gone. And my two associates were walking beside me, and then I was suddenly staying out in the desert. Now, the Arlofotep often appears in a desert form if you read, uh, if you read, uh, uh, Donald Tyson's books about him, he's in the uh, in Arabian Desert, he launches about that. There might have been some kind of symbolism about that, I don't know. But I'm out here in the desert, and my two associates, and this is an example of what I'm talking about, my two associates are there, but they're not standing beside me. One of them is off to the left, and one of them is off to the right. They're wearing robes, and their robes look a little different than the robes they had on when they were walking in that room. And they're seen before some kind of fire that's natural, but it's not natural colors. Like on the left, the guy's fire is kind of an amber color. 
on the right, the other person's fire is kind of a green, emerald green color. And it's burning in front of them. I don't see any light source, but I don't sit and focus on it very, very closely. I just see that, and then I just keep walking, and I have my experience. Now, where I found that when I'm in these kind of experience, if I focus my attention on any particular item, like I, I did it this time, I focused on my friend to the left, and suddenly, he started to kind of wither, he started to wither, he started to move real quickly, kind of like a wasp. You ever see a wasp, like a wasp kind of pulling itself out of an apple or something? It's kind of a, an eerie kind of a sensation watching because it wiggles and it's totally inhuman, it's kind of, it's insectoid, but it's moving and it's jerking back and forth. And he was moving like that. And I focused, oh, wow. my, I focused my attention on him and then suddenly he became like, suffused in the amber flames and then i looked on the other side and the same thing happened on the other side suffused in the green thing and then i assumed that my see they had we had this strictly blocked out so we're supposed to do certain things and recite and then vibrate certain words i presume that they were doing all that but whatever i was experiencing there it, it wasn't them you know, at least I hoped it wasn't, but when you're involved in an intellectual decompression kind of situation like that, you don't actually think, you don't actually look, God, did this person actually go up in flames in the real world? You know, I don't, I didn't right. really ask that question. I just you're trying to, trying to stay in the trance state, trying to be in, in the experience, in the moment, and try to, as much as possible, withhold the concern for what's actually going on in the physical world so that you can maintain the experience, correct? Yeah, and I don't think anything's going on. I think what they do, they have their own perceptions, and they are their own kind of people, and so they are perceiving it the way that they saw it, and I stepped out of that, and who knows, maybe they stepped out of it too. Like when I would, we would all get together afterwards and kind of compare notes. And in most cases, my magical practitioner would stay very firmly in our space-time continuum. Like in that sand dune, my uh, magical practitioner would focus on the area. He would, things would come to him out of other dimensions, and then you'd have to deal with them. He would see things that you'd have to deal with that shouldn't have been there. But uh, he would stay firmly in the time-space continuum. The other person that was there was kind of like for balance factor, because the other guy that I had was an atheist. He's an atheist, he doesn't believe in entities, doesn't believe in gods or goddesses. He's very much like Lovecraft was. And so he's there kind of like to provide balance, to kind of offset the whole thing. In most cases, in the rituals, he won't see anything, but he would get a horrible feeling of dread for some reason. You know, and he was totally rational, so that was an irrational thing. And there was one time where he actually became terrified after the ritual. He saw something about me when I came back to the circle that scared him. He actually he was trying to get the other person to actually attack me with a sword or something. So there's all sorts of weird things that happen here. Whoa, 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 whoa. He, he was he, trying to get the other person he, to he attack said, you with... He said to the other guy, he said, uh, there's something weird about his eyes or something. He said, get the sword out, you know, hit him with a sword, you know, because he was afraid that it wasn't me. And the other person didn't do it, of course. Now, the other person is the one I rely upon to protect the thing because he can keep his head in situations like that. Right. He can see, he can see things, things will come at him, and he, he won't forget where he is. He's very practical and materialistic, even though he's a magical practitioner. So he'll actually prevent something from interfering. And when I say interfering, something distracting me. And I'm not even in the circle, I'm in a different circle, but he takes care of the whole area. So anything that comes at him, they have to come through him first. And so he takes care of it. But he can be susceptible to illusions, too. So this is a kind of weird kind of things that happen. But when I was actually back in that other dimension, uh, I actually didn't think that my friends had actually been uh, been consumed by those things. But I don't know, you know, frankly. I, I know, and I'm not going to break my concentration. I'm not going to focus too much on it because who knows what could happen then. I mean, these, right. are, these are different probabilities. I, I mean, you've studied... Chaos magic, we talk about the probability distributions as applying to the theory of things. So these are different probabilities, but they're not possibilities, they're probabilities. And according to the quantum physicists, they don't actually exist unless they become realized or unless we're measuring them or we're focusing on them. So as long as they don't focus on them, they're just probabilities, which means they don't exist. So I don't worry. I didn't worry that much about it. I just went on to the experience I had. Uh, after that. So that's a good example. I don't want to 
uh, talk too much about the actual experiences because each time you do these rituals is different for each person depending on their own skill set and their own perceptions. Uh, oh, I, would, I would say that any spiritual contact <clears throat> is going to be colored by a person's experience, a person's level of skill. So yes, yes, I agree with what you're saying. Um, so, okay, back to your research on Lovecraft now, because you've had very interesting experiences, and we'll come back to more of your experiences and your experiments. But Lovecraft was a self-pronounced materialist and atheist. He sure was. So, coming from the perspective of your research on him, and all the work that he did creating this pantheon of gods and goddesses, this is something that most atheists would not devote themselves to. Uh, why, why do you think that he created such colorful images as an atheist? Yeah, well, I think this is what happened with Lovecraft, and I think this is the reason why his work is so powerful, and his work is very powerful. Like, if you want uh, the best uh, literary treatment of the uh, alternate dimensions as postulated by quantum physics, read The Dreams and the Witchers. I mean, it's just a perfect story for that. Now, you've got to remember that this story, The Dreams in the Witch House, was actually written in 1932. And I would argue that story is probably still the best one, even with the contemporary fiction we have right now, the best portrayal of what a quantum dimension could be like. So Lovecraft is totally relevant right now. In fact, he still transcends the other people that are writing Mythos literature. I don't know if you read Mythos literature. I'm going to get back to your question, by the way. I'm a college professor, so what I do is I tend to meander a little bit, but I always kind of uh, zero in back to the original starting point. I'm going to do that in one minute. Well, that's fine. But what I want to say about Lovecraft is that uh, a lot of the mythos writers today, uh, they're just monster stories. I mean, I read a lot of that literature, and they're just monster stories. That's all they are. And Lovecraft wasn't talking about monsters. He was talking about entities that are totally alien, that uh, it takes different forms of perception to even understand. So he was very, his views were very sophisticated. His view of magical practitioners was very sophisticated, and it's not been matched by anybody nowadays ever. You know? So I think that's one reason why Lovecraft is relevant. But I think also that Lovecraft's strength uh, comes from a strong dichotomy he had in his own, whatever you want to call it, psyche, mind, soul, whatever you call it. And I call it the daytime Lovecraft, I call it the nighttime Lovecraft. In the daytime, uh, Lovecraft wasn't what he called himself as a mechanistic materialist, and he believed there was nothing that existed apart from matter, and that everything in existence and all of his experience can be explained in terms of material substances. This is pure Newtonian physics, right? And he was an atheist. So he believed that there was no such things as gods or gods. He didn't believe in any spirituality. He didn't believe in any subtle forces like the Aether or anything like that. He uh, actually disavowed all of that. And he, he uh, was not shy about talking about that all the time. He didn't believe in gods or gods at all. However, the thing about Lovecraft was that he was a very complicated man. And at night, he would have these very, very vivid dreams. And he was very fascinated by what he discovered in his dreams. He was also very frightened by what he discovered in his dreams. And in those dreams, uh, it was a different view of reality altogether. And what Lovecraft did is, he kind of gravitated toward that, so in his wake day life, his dreams kind of fueled his attraction toward weird literature, and then it fueled his desire to write weird fiction as well. However, he never let go of the daytime. Kind of side. So what's interesting about Lovecraft, I think this is why it's so important and so powerful too, because he never resolved that dichotomy. And so when he started creating entities, and it's really a mystery why you want to write about magical entity, and some scholars claim that he wasn't. They said that was an immature form of Lovecraft, and then when he matured, he actually demythologized his entities, which is a bunch of hogwash, by the way. I've addressed that a little bit in this first book here, but I refute that view entirely in my second book. There's a strong magical backstory in all of Lovecraft's things, and the magical definitely won out in his personal life. He never demythologized anything. He was always open to supplements to reality as well, so he really wasn't an atheist. He was more of an agnostic. But anyhow, there was this dichotomy in Lovecraft, 
And so when he actually started to do composition, he couldn't let go of the materialistic part. And so when he created entities, he created the only kinds of entities that a person like him could create. Scientific entities, quantum physics entities. And so that's why his entities are the way they are. And so I would argue that the reason why Lovecraft's work is so powerful is because part of him believed in it, part of him didn't, and there was always this tension between the two and made his work that much more vivid and that much more compelling and that much more relevant for uh, the 21st century. Excellent. Now, some occult writers have proclaimed that the great old ones are actual gods and goddesses originally worshipped in ancient Samaria and in different parts of the Middle East. Is there anything to back up those claims? Uh, you're hitting the talking points. Love it. You know. I can do this stuff in my sleep. You know. Well, uh, I don't know about that. You know, I mean, the kind of person I am is this. I find that a lot of occultists sometimes are kind of negative in a lot of ways. They like to criticize other people. I was reading an article the other day by somebody who was criticizing chaos magic, and they're claiming that chaos magic is sophistry, you know, because they don't believe in anything, so they can't really be in touch with any kind of magic. That's a bunch of nonsense coming up with views like that. First of all, we're a very small community. All of us are a small community, right? I think the largest amount of um, pagans or New Age people are the Wiccans. There's probably about 400,000 of them around now, and then there's only about 2,000 uh, OTO people in all the lodges and in the organizations across the country. And I don't know about Chaos Magic. I don't know if Peter Carroll keeps statistics, but it'd be hard to do that anyhow, because a lot of those practitioners are like individual practitioners with small groups. So we're a very small part of the population. You know, so I do not want to denigrate anybody. I think everybody, all of us, the Satanists too, I think all of us actually are contributing by trying to expand human consciousness and perception and trying to help people. Like Andre, he's going around, he's a very busy man from those mountains and shoulders. He's going around trying to help people. He does these uh, these things that you're talking about, but I understand also he's kind of like a motivational, he kind of uh, tries to help corporate people as well. We're all trying to help people, and so I think we should like be nice to each other, don't you? Because we're such a small part of the population, we shouldn't be doing infighting. I think we're all on the same basic motives here. We want to kind of uplift consciousness and, and uh, perceptions and make people into finer people more qualified people, people fain to take their place when uh, things will change and science is moving in that direction too, so I don't think we should be doing any infighting. But let me zero back to that point. You know, so the first time I think that view was articulated by, uh, uh, I'm not so sure Anton LaVey articulated it so much because if you look in the satanic rituals, his entity does have a really good call to food there, but he tends to have like actors playing the parts of entities, like in that other one, the ceremony of the nine angles. He has uh, some nigger appearing, and I think he has a yard appearing too, but these are actually clearly meant to be actors, so I'm not sure what his view on that entities are, at least LeVay's uh, original views in that book, but the first one that I can think of would be Simon, of the author of uh, the uh, Sumerian Necronomicon, which came out like in the 70s. Mm-hmm. He actually tried to argue. He tried to argue that they're actually real Sumerian entities. And he's got some intriguing things in there. Like you probably read the Simon Necronomicon, right? Certainly, certainly. Yeah, well, he has things like he talks about Cthulhu, and he's got like uh, Azagdaw, he's got an entity called Ishigarab. Uh, that apparently is meant to be shown here. So these entities here, because of these names, he tries to link them to Sumerian entities. And really, it's very hard to disprove that because we don't really know that much about Sumerian culture or about Sumerian gods or what they were about. You know, so you can do this kind of thing. You can make an argument that uh, these were actually bastardized forms of entities from all sorts of various Babylonian, Assyrian, and sources like that. And so, whether or not you can make that argument, I certainly can't refute that. I, I think it's very unlikely to be real Sumerian entities, but I'm certainly not going to refute it. So what I would argue is this, I'd argue the fictional entities, but then we go back to the question, does that invalidate their use in magical rituals? You know, just because they're fictional, can we use them in magical rituals? And, and this I is think, where this is where things get particularly interesting. 
and I breathe with them. Like uh, when I've studied, I've studied a couple of Chaos Magic uh, tracks, and incidentally, I'm going to read Andrea's book, by the way, The uh, Hands-On Chaos Magic. What I do is I'm real busy. I'm a full-time college professor, so during the semester, I'm real busy, and I'm working on my second book, too, but in the summertime, I don't teach. And so I have a list of books that I read during the summer. And last uh, last summer, I read like about seven different books because I like to keep my hand in. You know, so I've got Andre's book on that list. I'm going to order it from Amazon like I always do. And then I have a couple other. I have one, Grant Hardin's next book about ontology. I'm going to read that too. So I've got. Well, John, yeah. I will rec- I will recommend to you the same thing I recommend to anyone who takes on Andrea's hands-on chaos magic. You don't get it's it's not a book that's meant just to be passively read. It's a workbook that's meant to be used. Oh good. Good. And I, I think that even with your level of experience you will find it quite useful. Oh, everything's useful to to no matter what level you and I'm not so sure I'm at any great level. Uh, but uh, uh, whatever level a person's at, everything should be useful. So, my God, we can't close our minds. We might really miss something. Everything is useful. I mean, doesn't chaos magic say that everything's permitted? Uh, I know quantum physics says that uh, whatever is not forbidden is compulsory. You know? So that's kind of very similar to that old man of the mountain phrase in chaos magic. But for heaven's sakes, we can't limit our minds at all. Well, you know, you know let, let me say this, John. Obviously, um, as you have broached tonight, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about chaos magic. So let me just let me just set the record straight and say chaos magic is not so much a belief system as it is a working philosophy to get out there and experiment and actually do magic. Well, that's what it should be about. I don't understand armchair magic. That that never made too much sense for me. That was a, that caught you off guard, didn't I? Because I sit here with these long answers to your questions, and that was like about seven years. <laughs> well, no, I, I love the fact that I'm speaking to a, to a college-level professor who not only are you well-versed and well-studied in the things that you're speaking about, but you've actually gone out and experimented and done the work, and you're coming back with very inter- entertaining stories about, hey, I've got this guy standing beside me while I'm doing this ritual. He's a complete skeptic, but he's having a weird experience due to my ritual. Those are the those are the kind of stories that I love to hear. Yeah, well, uh, what I would contend is I'm going to get this thing published right now. I'm in the, in working on the introduction. So all, all the rituals are there, but I'm just putting it in a final form. I'm adding a little scholarly depth to it, and also I can give some kind of rationale as much as I can because I don't think any of this is really quantifiable. It's certainly not subjected to empirical uh, measurement. So then I got the rituals. And I'm doing the rituals because, you know, I like the scholarly thing, but I get a lot of people that want rituals from me, too. There's some place called the Necronomicon Mystery School. I'm not sure who they are and stuff, but they contacted me when the first book came out. They said they liked the book, but they want some rituals from me. And so what I'm going to do, I want to give people some rituals so at least they'll understand a little bit where I'm coming from. I'm pretty sure these rituals will work even for S.T. Joshi, you know, the great love pair scholar. He gave me nice endorsements, by the way. But he's a complete atheist and materialist. Completely. He's one of the ones that wants to get magic out of Lovecraft entirely. He doesn't like magic at all. I was a wonder they actually read my manuscript and gave me viable criticisms and then actually gave me an endorsement because he hates magic. He hates occultism entirely. And he loves Lovecraft. He wants us to believe that Lovecraft was just as much of an atheist as he was, and he wasn't. Of course, you know, and so I feel that I have to do more. I mean, I'm doing my scholarly work, right? And I guess you could argue that's armchair occultism, but I like being out there too. And I want some rituals out there to just show people kind of like what I'm talking about. And I have no doubt that even S.T. Joseph did one of my rituals, something would happen to him. I would hope that he wouldn't like encourage a friend of his to attack another person with a sword, but I think something would happen if he did the rituals, no matter how much money. <laughs> But no matter how much of an unbeliever he is, I think if you could get him out here and Jason Colabato, do you know who Jason Colabato is? Similar name to yours, by the way. I, I actually do not know him, sir, but go on. Well, you can look him up. He's a terrible atheist and materialist, too. He doesn't believe in magic. And he came down on my book heavily when it first came out. He, he wrote a book called uh, about Lovecraft. Where he was arguing that Lovecraft's work actually inspired the whole alien 
um, the whole alien astronaut theories. And he actually does a very good job of developing that, showing how people like Pauline Berger, who wrote Morning the Magician, uh, and, uh, and Eric Von Daniken in 1971, how they actually derived their theory of alien astronauts from Lovecraft's work in the 30s. You know? So he does a very good job of doing that, but he, uh, I believe that he, and he's as bad as S.T. Josie when it comes to materialism and atheists. I have no doubts that if him and Josie and some other atheists were in a circle, if they did my rituals, I think something would happen to those guys. You know, now what they would do, they're very slippery, atheists are. What they do after it happens, when they're actually in the experience, uh, they can't deny it. Things happen and they react emotionally and psychologically. But when you're out of it, then suddenly the defense mechanism will come in again. And then they explain it all away. They explain it all away. Oh, it didn't really happen. It was just delusion. And they'll have like all sorts of complicated reasons why they felt the way they did. And it's usually a combination of different factors that really is very improbable that all those things came together that precise moment. But they'll do it anyway. You know, so once you're outside the magical working area, uh, you're, you're, it, it never happened. You know, so but I think when when if they were in that experience, they would have an experience too. I have no doubts about that. So, what is your personal theory, John? Are you contacting something external from yourself, or are you touching on something within yourself that's creating these experiences? I believe, and I cannot prove this. I cannot prove this. I'm having experiences, and I believe there's something external to me. And I believe that what it is is colored largely by the fact that I'm kind of trapped in this time space continuum. We're all trapped in this. That's what Graham Harmon talks about. He wrote a really good book called um, Lovecraft and Philosophy. And he analyzes like how Lovecraft actually tries to, he puts Lovecraft right up there with the other speculative realists. But he's claiming that we're conditioned to see the world a certain way and we can't really break past it except by illusion or by, he calls it uh, illusion, or by the horizontal technique, which is a cubist technique. And he argues that Lovecraft actually puts these kind of techniques in his works. So he puts Lovecraft right next to Picasso and to Herschel and to people like uh, Martin Heidegger, the great uh, empiricist. He puts him right up there philosophically with these kind of people. They're breaking down conventional barriers so that we can kind of teach ourselves to perceive things differently, to perceive other dimensions. And so um, I would argue that I'm perceiving something that's not part of myself, but that I've actually created a link to it in a certain way. But whether it's actually the way that I perceive it, or whether it's something entirely different, I really can't be sure of that. I, I cannot empirically prove anything that happens to me. Can't do that at all. So, John, let's talk about the difference between what you've what you've studied with Lovecraft and you broached the Necronomicon, which is referred to by Lovecraft, but but there are actually the, the Necronomicon you referred to written in the seventies is one of multiple Necronomicons, correct? Yes, there's a whole bunch of them. There's probably one being written right now as we talk. I want to so, doubt it. So, what can, what can you tell the listeners about, okay, any Necronomicon is pretty much an inspired writing, correct? It's, it's not, there is no the Necronomicon floating around out there. No, love it was a total fictional thing. Uh, it's, uh, there is no the Necronomicon out there. And uh, I would argue this about Necronomicon. And I have a couple of favorite ones myself. The Simon one is a favorite one of mine, but I don't really use it that much. I do use that one ritual. We've got a ritual about evoking the watcher. And that ritual is actually very useful. My, uh, the practitioner that I said that works for me that actually keeps the area uh, safe, he always evokes the watcher. He evokes it to visible here because he wants it kind of patrolling the area. And so he uses that ritual. He'll swear by that ritual. But I don't use that that myself. I actually composed my own rituals, you know, but what I would argue is that Necronomicon and all the Necronomicons are useful. They're all the same, basically. They're kind of like pseudo-Necronomicons because they're like inspired by Lovecraft. Uh, some of them are more or less, I would argue that some of them are written by magical practitioners and actually been, have gotten 
the information from someplace else. I don't know where it came from. A lot of times they don't say where it came from. And then they usually build up this whole kind of hokey story about how they discovered the manuscript. Like Simon claimed it was discovered in the case of Breaking Down, two book thieves, and he was there and he discovered that the manuscript. And conveniently, of course, the manuscripts are always lost. Right? The original manuscript, you can never verify it was that way. But they like to kind of pretend it was an actual document. But a lot of them, I think, are actually challenging with these things again from other sources. Some of them is just pure creative, like uh, like uh, Lynn Carter's Necronomicon. Uh, that one was just total, total literary creation based on that. I would say Donald, Donald Tyson's Necronomicon, he wrote that one to kind of like give it uh, uh, a sense of what it feels like to live in kind of Lovecraftian country, so to speak. And then he wrote a book that kind of actually expands upon that necronomy. It's called Al Hazra, and that's a novel where he actually expands upon all the different chapters into like a very large book, about 400 page book. You know, but those are inspired by Lovecraft. But I would argue that he's got some uh, uh, seagulls that you can use, some magical talismans, which he created himself using the Kabbalah of Nine Chambers. You know, he makes no secret about that. Uh, he's also written Grimoire the Necronomicon, which is very interesting. I think in, you, in that one, you actually mentor with Great Old, which is kind of really weird, because it's kind of like a white magical Necronomicon, because you actually partner with the old ones, which is totally diametrically opposed to what Lovecraft knew. The old ones kind of viewed us the way we would view an insect, you know, and you, you swat them when you get in the way, but you don't pay any attention to them otherwise. You know, so mentoring with these entities is kind of a stretch. You know, but I would argue this. All these necronomicons, wherever they came from, if they've got things that speak to you and which you find useful and you think you could use or do something with, by all means use them. They're completely valid for that kind of purpose. You know, so I don't think any of them are off limits at all. I think they're all useful as long as you can get results with them and as long as they get you into some kind of relationship with the, whatever we want to call it, chaos, the cosmos, you could call it God if you want, you could call it chaos if you want, call it whatever you want, if, as long as they generate some kind of magical or uh, spiritual or uh, insight, some kind, some kind of gnosis, then by all means use the, the necronomicon. So the mythos of the great old ones tends to be that they're very, as you said, they view mankind such as insects. Um, adversarial in a sense. I've heard it thrown around in various circles jokingly that the goal of those who work with the great old ones is to be eaten first. <laughs> um, I just I want to get your commentary on such things. Yeah, well, what I think is this. Whatever you uh, bring to the old ones, they'll completely repay you for because your mind is human. Your mind is imposing certain things on. And so if you go to the old ones, with like uh, motives, they're not necessary just for knowledge or knowledge and power. When I say knowledge and power, I don't mean bad knowledge or bad power. I don't mean knowledge to dominate people or power to rule the world. I just mean knowledge and usually knowledge is something outside yourself and then usually some power comes along with it, but it's not bad power, it's just power that comes along with it. But a lot of people can use these things for bad purposes, you know, or they think that they're evoking and they think they're evil or something. And if they do that, then what happens is they're actually already projecting out to the old one. And so they're they're certainly evoking some kind of energy, but whether it's the bad part, it's just really hard to explain, you know, but I'm thinking that whatever happens to them is because they draw it themselves. That's why I'm saying. So if they if they feel that the old ones are going to eat them, or if they're actually entities that can eat them, whatever that means, and I assume they mean it just like in the Lovecraft story. There were some sailors when Cthulhu came up, they were actually grabbed up by his claws and eaten. I would argue that those people's their perceptions were so limited that they saw this as a monster, and they had behaved like a monster because they wanted it to. They uh, labeled it as a monster. Other people, one of the sailors was actually being pulled into another dimension, and this is all that Lovecraft told us. He said all he could see was an angle, there was an acute angle, and it was behaving as all it was an obtuse. That's it. Just an mm. angle. It was just an angle, and this guy disappeared into that. Now, whether this guy was going into a different dimension or changed his perception, that's an entire. One person just looked at me, all they could think of was a mountain walk or stumble. A mountain walked or stumbled. That's it. 
nothing with claws, no big monster. It was just this vast thing they fell there, couldn't really see it. He didn't understand where it was, a mountain walked your stomach. You know, so whatever happens to these people, uh, they what happens to them is what they brought with them, which is why I'm not too worried. You know, I hear about some occultists, they're trying to open the gates, whatever that means, be, be, between the dimensions and letting the old ones in, and then presumably that's an apocalypse and then we get wiped out and that's the, the old ones taking, taking over everything again, we're gone, right? If they want to do that, they're not going to really hurt anybody other than themselves. You know, if they want to be consumed, if they want an apocalypse, they're going to get one. Okay, but it's not going to be anything to do with you or me or the rest of this thing. It's going to be on them, and they're going to be the ones that suffer. And I, I think you could argue that that might be part of the law of karma. It might not. Uh, me calling that karma is me projecting something based on my limited uh, uh, perceptions here, and so it might not be that entirely. We're in a very uncertain, strange dimension when we uh, deal with these kinds of things, so I don't think it's anything that we should fear. Why should we fear knowledge and power? So your your personal take is if someone were doing those workings with the intent of calling down the Cthulian apocalypse, for lack of a better term, that they're going to have a personal apocalypse. They're not going to rain the apocalypse down on the entirety of mankind. Yeah, or nothing would happen at all. But I would think that they would be in apocalypse. And from their, from their standpoint, doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be devoured by an invisible monster in front of a thousand people. They claim that Al Hazra, the uh, person that transcribed the Necronomicon, actually was devoured by an invisible monster in, in a crowd. And nothing, I mean, parts of them were there and then parts were not. It wasn't, there was no mess at all. I mean, it was like Mr. Clean or something. I mean, he was just there one man and he was devoured and they could see parts of him missing and he was obviously suffering and then he wasn't there anymore. You know, so in that kind of case, I think that he brought that on himself for some reason, uh, but I don't know. I don't, I don't really know, but I think that what would happen to those evil, and I don't, I hate to use terms like evil, but to practitioners that would actually try and wipe out the universe, I don't know why anybody would want to do that. That's not very possible at all, but I think it would be a mental thing with them. Usually it would be a mental thing. Uh, they would either go insane, they'd have mental problems, or they would do something really stupid, like a lot of times young people get a hold of the Necronomicon and then they'll like, uh, read it and they'll think they know what they're doing, and then they'll like kill their girlfriend's parents or something and they get put away for like, uh, in prison for life and stuff. So I think those kind of outcomes would be more likely than, than being devoured by an invisible monster. But I'm not too worried about those kind of people at all. I think what we have to do is use these things purely and try and be as objective as possible. Not really be good or evil, but just be objective. And then just uh, get the knowledge and power. And if it's genuine knowledge, we come out of it, we change. And if we do it over time, I think we can kind of avoid the possibility of dying because we die because we're constrained by this time-space continuum. If we look at a probability of a different dimension and we can actually be comfortable in that dimension, then we probably don't die. We probably uh, operate in that dimension when our experience in this one is over. So I think that it increases our knowledge and our power. It makes us stronger mentally the more we do this and it can change. With me, it's actually changed my perceptions about things. I've noticed this over time how the way that I look at the world has changed too. I think people like Scott Jones, have you ever heard of Scott Jones? He wrote When the Stars Are Right, and he's talking about a Rileyan kind of uh, spirituality uh, coming in the future. And I think that is what will happen if we use these things objectively. You know, so I'm not, I'm not worried about the evil people so much. And besides, evil people are stupid, right? Like say that a person's got a gun, right? and they want to go shoot somebody and they don't really know how to use a gun properly, they'll usually end up shooting themselves, right? Shooting themselves in the head. <laughs> that, well, right, right, right. You know, they'll right, shoot right. In, or they'll shoot a friend of theirs that is going to help them rob somebody. So uh, people that are at that level, they usually get paid back. Like I said, again, I don't know if it's karma. I know the Wiccans like to uh, uh, kind of quantify that. They'll say whatever you do comes back three times. I don't think they can quantify that. But I think that the universe or chaos or whatever takes care of people like that. And then they, it comes back at them 
and I don't think we have to worry about it. And they give us a bad name. I mean, every time somebody does this sort of thing, like a young person takes an economic and he kills his, his girlfriend and parents, he goes to prison, they always play it up in the press, you know, the kid had the neck economic, huh? And then that kind of sets us back a little bit, you know, like when I talk about black magic, and I'm kind of suspect when I talk about the Necronomicon or Satanism, and I'm suspect too, like I'm doing something wrong. So I, I don't think it helps us, uh, at least philosophically, but uh, I can't well, do to, it. to clarify for the audience, when, when you throw the term out black magic, you're not speaking of doing evil, you're speaking of doing magic for practical purposes. That's right. I mean, in my first chapter, I talk about the difference between white and black. You've got to remember something about this book, okay? This book was written for fans of Lovecraft, fans of science fiction and horror, who know probably a little bit about Lovecraft, but don't necessarily know anything about black magic or magic at all. But they've heard a lot of stories. They hear stories. People saying like Lovecraft was an actual magical practitioner. Lovecraft was in... Connection with, connection with Aleister Crowley and the Abbey of Philema. Lovecraft was channeling Philemic entities. You know, in fact, uh, P, uh, Peter, uh, not Peter Carroll, I'm thinking about Peter Carroll, Peter Lavanda, the author of The Dark Lord, he makes that argument in His Dark Lord that, Love, that uh, Lovecraft was actually channeling entities from uh, Crowley's pantheon entities. So, you hear these kind of things, right? So people that don't know much about black magic, they don't really know what to think. The reason why I wrote this book, it's for them. It's to clarify all that. I think I do a pretty good job of that. And what a lot of people, I get letters from people or emails where they talk about the latter half of the book where I look at Lovecraft's influence on the different magical systems. A lot of them love that because some of them can't make head or tail of this stuff at all. Like Kenneth Grant's Typhonian system. A lot of people can't make head or tell what he's talking about. Have you read Kenneth Grant's books? I'm sure you have. Yes. Yeah. You know, sometimes you read those things and he likes his little gematria. And st- a lot of times it's not really clear what the heck he's talking about. You know, I mean, I understand what he's talking about, but a lot of people reading that, they don't know what the heck he's talking about. And he goes on and on, adding up these numbers and stuff. And it really kind of can really wear a person out if you don't know what he's talking about. And a lot of people just don't know what that's all about. And he doesn't help them any. You know, his book kind of repeat the same things over and over again in different ways. And then the more things he's read, the more he incorporates in. You know, she started incorporating Lovecraft into his thing in the second book. And he did it kind of the way Simon did. But then later on, in like his uh, his outer gateways, he's talking about like the uh, Necronomicon Gnosis. So he's actually viewing the Simon book now as actually an actual viable magical document, something that he wasn't willing to do back when he wrote the cult of, uh, of uh, the cult, what is it? God, I'm having a mental block. His second book, uh, the one right after The Hidden God. Uh, uh, oh. I'll remember that book. It's actually in my library, which is across the hall from my so I can't even look at it. Yeah, it's okay, John. And so I'm having a mental block about that. But in any case, in his second book, he went about as far as uh, and Simon did where he wasn't trying to claim that Lovecraft knew anything about it. He was just trying to see comparison between Lovecraft's mythology and then the Sumerian mythology. And then later on, he told Lovecraft right in. Lovecraft was a practicing magician. You know? So he altered his position. But what a lot of the people that read this book like is that I actually clarify in that chapter what the grant system is all about and then how Lovecraft impacts on And I do that for all the systems too, like the Satanist systems and then the voodoo cults. I know Andrea is actually a uh, high priest in the voodoo religion, and I'd be kind of interested to have his opinions on some of this too, because I have a chapter on the voodoo, and I have a chapter on chaos magic, but my chapter on chaos magic is very simple. I don't get into those uh, magical equations at all, because this is for science fiction horror fans, so I do it as basic as I can, uh, to, so they'll actually, when they get done reading the book, they understand what we're talking about, and then they can go further, like if somebody reads my chapter in Chaos Magic, they might say, hmm, this stuff is pretty interesting, and they might read some of Carol's works, or they might read this hands-on Chaos Magic book, or they might attend one of Andre's uh, little seminars or workshops, and does too. so uh, that's why I wrote the book, basically. I think it actually does what it's supposed to do. Hey, John? Wow, we've we've had a great I conversation. I want to thank you for coming out. 
Um, in the final minute, I would like you to tell the audience, do you have any public events coming up? Anything you'd, you'd like people to come out to? Yeah, you're a sweetheart for asking that. A lot of times people don't ask, and I get so fired up with all this nonsense I've been talking about that I forget, <laughs> to, do it. I forget to do it myself. Uh, it's sensible stuff, but it is nonsense because it can't be, uh, we can't actually give us any empirical evidence. But yeah, uh, at the end of summer, I had a few really good events. I, last year, I went to the Carnival of Horror Horror, Horror Horror. 2017 now. It's going to be in Buffalo, New York. And what I'm going to do there, it's August 26th to 27th on Saturday and Sunday. I'm going to do a little presentation, H.P. Lovecraft from horror icon to cultural and occult icon. And then I'm going to have a book signing on those two days, so I'll have copies of my books and I'll sign. And it worked out real good last year. It was a lot of fun, too. It's in this old place called the Grand Central Terminal in Buffalo, and it's a band. And it was a it was a bus and a, a train terminal and it's abandoned and it's just a big spooky wonderful place that's falling apart and people should come just to see that place. you know if I'm going to be there on August 26th 27th and then I'm going to be at Scarefest 10 convention in Lexington Kentucky and again this is going to be a weekend thing September 30th October 1st and Saturday and Sunday I'm going to do a presentation on H.P. Lovecraft in the cinema. And then I'm going to do presentations on those two, or book signs on those two days also. You can find all this stuff listed in events on my website, www.johnlsteadman.com. And the blog, my blog, you mentioned, you thank me for uh, mentioning the show on my blog. They can check out my blog too on just Blogspot. And anybody that wants to go to anything, all you do is Google Chrome and type my name or H.P. Lovecraft and Black Magical Tradition, and you'll get a bunch of stuff. And you can link to all this stuff. In there. So that's it. I'm done plugging myself. This was really a lot. Oh, great. I, I want to thank you for coming out. I wanted to let you know. Let me know when you get ready to publish the second book. We'll have you back. I sure will. I hope somebody buys it. You know, I'm going to try the well, and I think on this one, I know Andre's book is probably for everyone. So uh, they, the reason why I like the well is because they do beautiful, beautiful, magical. Things. They do. They it's do. Beautiful. So I'd like to do this one, but if not, you know, we'll see what happens. Well, with that, I'm going to have Andrea take us on out, and I we will talk to everybody next week. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. You're welcome, sir.